Welcome listeners, have a seat over here by the fire. This is an episode-by-episode watch-along podcast for the new Wheel of Time TV show. Unless you're listening at some point after the inevitable reboot, in which case this is a podcast about the old Wheel of Time TV show. But never mind that dark future, and never mind the Trollocs, here's the podcast. Hey listeners, here's the podcast. I'm Sarah, uh, she and they pronouns. And the first time I cut my hair, by the way, I'm, I'm Ginger, this is important for later. Uh, <laughs> first time I cut my hair to be really short, it immediately resulted in me becoming a Tumblr rand kinny. So there's that. And here are my co-hosts who are probably significantly more normal than that. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm Tom, he, him. I am young enough and online enough to know what a Tumblr rant Kinney is, but only just barely. And I'm betting a lot of people who are listening to this will have no idea what you just said. Good. I'm Nina. She, they pronouns. Uh, Every time the opening to this show starts, I hear the Game of Thrones opening music in my head. (laughs) I'm Max. He, him pronouns. And I used the wrong mic to record locally last episode. I didn't need to know that. Okay, my other L is that the first time I tried to cut my own hair, it was so bad I had to just like just completely start anew and shave everything off. Rip F. I Me mean, specifically it was because I was using a beard trimmer and not a razor. <laughs> I was young. I didn't know any better. I didn't know there was a difference. I've learned something today. Thank you. Very One much. can't cut hair good. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I was used to cut my flatmate's hair because no one gave a shit. Um, hi, this week we watched an episode called A Place of Safety. Mm. Got it in one. Did we even mention the episode name last week? Absolutely not. That's why I thought we should do it this week for possibly the first time. <laughs> um, we're watching Wheel of Time. Uh, did you know that? Um, <laughs> do, we, do we have anything to do before getting into the recap? I have never written down how this podcast goes. <laughs> for some reason, which is probably why it never really goes. Um, <laughs> it goes. Don't be like that. Okay. Um, let's go hard or go home. Um, shall we? Do we have a recap for this week? We do. All right. Now, because I have the memory of a goldfish, is it Nynaeve? How are they saying her name? Nynaeve. Nynaeve. Either yeah, Nynaeve, Nynaeve or Nynaeve, however you want to. <laughs> like either of those All right. are normal sounding. How did Nynaeve escape the Trollocs? The beast that dragged her away was briefly distracted, eating one of its wounded compatriots, giving Nynaeve a chance to run. She took shelter in the water of a sacred pool, and when the Trolloc went in after her, she was able to wrest away its dagger and kill it, the blood in the water taking the form of a curved teardrop. She tracked her friends until she found just Lan and Moraine. Holding Lan at sword point, she demands to know where her friends are, what Moraine did to them. Lan tries to convince her to heal Moraine, that Moraine is their best hope at finding the others. But Nynaeve doesn't trust him or the Aes Sedai. She lunges with her sword, but Lan knocks her unconscious. Nynaeve wakes tied to a tree. In daylight, she can see just how sick Moraine is and agrees to try to heal her. But even her strongest poultices can only do so much. 
The healing gives Moraine just enough energy to stay on a horse, and the three of them ride until they reach an encampment, a group of Aes Sedai, led by Leandrin, the leader of the Women in Red from the first episode. She informs them that they've captured a man who claims to be the Dragon Reborn. Meanwhile, Egwene and Perrin stumble across a barren, windy plain chased by the howls of wolves. They stop to light a fire and to rest, and Perrin dreams of waking up in his own bed at the smithy. In his dream, rain pounds down, and red eyes glow through the window. He goes looking for Layla and finds her slumped on the ground next to the forge, cut up, covered in blood, a wolf eating her entrails. Suddenly, she turns to him. I know, she says, and when he turns to run, the figure with burning eyes and mouth is standing in his way. Egwene shakes him awake. The wolves are chasing them again. They run through leafless woods and out into the open, and the wolves stop short. Finding cart tracks and signs of people, they decide to follow, and when they turn back to the woods, the wolves have gone. On the path, they encounter travelers, tinkers, the Tuatha'an, and are given hospitality food and a chance to warm themselves by the fire. Did the wolves lead them there? At the same time, Matt and Rand argue about where to go. Matt just wants to go home, but Rand believes that Egwene will go to the White Tower, and needs to know she's alright. For now, at least, Matt decides to stay with him. They trudge up a rocky slope and at the top look down to see a small mining town, scraped out of a narrow canyon. At the edge of town, a man hangs in a gibbet, body full of arrows. Catching stairs as they walk through town, the two go to the tavern. They've just enough money for a meal. There, they meet the glee man, Tom Marilyn, who performs a sad song about the dragon. They convince the barmaid to let them work in exchange for shelter for the night, but their argument about where to go next comes to a head. Matt is determined to beg, borrow, and steal his way back to the two rivers. To that end, Matt returns to the gibbet to rob the corpse, but as a run-in with Tom Marilyn, who tells him about the dead man, lynched for being Aiel. Matt has heard that Aiel are as bad as Trollocs, but Marilyn describes them as fierce but honorable warriors. He can tell the man is Aiel by his clothes and his bright red hair, an unusual color outside Aiel's society, and similar to Rand's. He lets Matt take the valuables from the body, then he and Matt bury the corpse. Marilyn speaks what sounds like an Aiel prayer over the grave. The barmaid Dana shows Rand into a sturdy storehouse where he and Matt can rest. She and Rand drink together and flirt, but when she goes to kiss him, he pulls away. With a sigh, she locks the door. She is a dark friend, a servant of the Dark One, and she knows who they are. Unexpectedly, Rand manages to break the heavy door down, but Dana grabs his sword. Crashing into Matt outside, Rand drags him as they run from her through streets and alleys, but she knows the town and circles around in front of them. Don't they see? It's the Aes Sedai who want to kill the Dragon Reborn. The Dark One wants the dragon to break the wheel, to end humanity's suffering. There's no point in running. She has already called one of the Eyeless, a Fade. Then a dagger point emerges from her throat, the dagger thrown by Tom Marilyn. Time to run, he urges them. And although Rand doesn't trust the man, they don't have much choice. Hell yeah. <laughs> Word. So I think um, this episode, um, we meet the the character of Tom Marilyn, who I kind of want to open in talking about him. Mm -hmm. um, 
because you know he's very interesting because he seems like so knowledgeable about everything in the world like we learn a lot from him and like it really makes sense because like he must find so much stuff out when doing all the research for his Gundam podcast <laughs> very nice uh- <laughs> Tom welcome to the show thank you no it's similar but different the other way he'd be called Tom New York not Tom Maryland <laughs> fuck oh. oh gosh um, this is actually, I think, the first fictional character I ever encountered who spelled his name the way I do, with the H. Yeah. I'm pretty sure whenever I found out your name was spelled with an H, I was like, oh, just like Wheelie Time. <laughs> uh, it's not why I did it, but... Because I was, like, whenever I... I'm pretty sure we had, like, a Twitter interaction where you mentioned Wheelie Time, and I was like, oh, this person called Tom, who reads Wheel of Time, <laughs> spells his name with an H. Hmm... <laughs> Um, uh, coincidence it might seem. When when was the first Wheel of Time book published? 1990. Okay. I think he beat me to using the H by a couple of years. Mm -hmm. But I definitely Mm -hmm. started Mm -hmm. using it before I knew about Wheel of Time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if I give any more details about this, I'm going to give away my actual age, which I don't want to do. Unacceptable. (laughs) (laughs) I have to maintain the aura of mystery. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Doesn't that song sound like a Tom Waits song? Yeah. Yeah. It. I loved the song. I, I loved that we're just doing songs. We're just going all in on songs for this show. <laughs> musical. We, yeah, we love time. The we hit musical, time musical TV show. Although I, I do want to point out, mm-hmm. he does this super dramatic entrance for the song, which is all shot like of his boots. Right. It's all. just his lower legs Mm -hmm. Um, and he stalks in the whole room goes dead quiet he like stomps on the (laughs) the stage and then he sings a song that lasts like a minute yeah 90 Mm. seconds and from the way dana is talking about this he must like come in and do a song you know every half hour or something (laughs) Mm -hmm. does he do the dramatic entrance every time or does he only do it when he knows that main characters are in the tavern I'm pretty sure he does it every time because first things first, I just want to say about that dramatic entrance, it's the most erotically shot scene in this show so far. <laughs> like it's just it's pure sexual energy. And then also later on when he has a second entrance, which is he appears like behind Matt whenever Matt's gone to like check out the Ailman, um, and he appears and like the like Morricone like like guitar noise like plays so I just think every time Tom enters a room it is an entrance yeah like every door is a stage door well and every time he shows up in this episode um he's present before they show us his face like first it's the boots Mm. then when he comes up behind Matt what we actually see is like his hand and the dagger sliding out through his through his sleeve what's that you got there Tom yeah (laughs) put the crystal down Tom in the third appearance, when he shows up at the end, uh, it's only after we've had the very dramatic yeah. like, dagger emerging from uh, from Dana's throat. Mm. Mm. He has mm. such an air of mystery about him. He really, I, f- throughout the episode, we see him like almost being like what could become some sort of like father figure or mentor to Matt. Mm. He really feels like w- what Matt will become or what Matt like wants to be almost mm. like he has that same like suave like sort of dirtbag allure to him 
like he you know clearly they both have really good uh sleight of hand if they can both like pickpocket <laughs> each other mm-hmm. um so knowledgeable about the world like clearly well traveled and he really feels like a really great character to like instruct matt on hey here's how the world works you're gonna yeah you can steal that dude's crystal help me bury him first maybe it's like mm. you know you would expect any upstanding person to like say i'm not gonna let you steal from a dead guy but he's like eh, we've all been there go for it homie i felt so touched when he turns his back yeah while matt is looting the corpse it's like I understand this is not a thing you're doing lightly, and I am kindly not going to watch you do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It just, it feels oddly considerate and kind. Well, and... And it's like, in the reverse of um, Tom feeling like a person Matt could become, whatever, like, Tom, it feels like Tom has been the person that Matt was, like, and has been in those desperate situa- situations yeah. and understands his him goes both ways yeah there is a metatextual element to this too because they give us a like last time on wheel of time segment at the beginning of this episode oh i didn't watch this the things that they choose to include in those segments are always very significant and in this one in this episode they gave us a scene from the first episode they gave us the scene of matt's drunken mother saying oh you're gonna be just like your father damn prick And they put some of that audio over video of him taking the cursed dagger. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about it. What could it mean? (laughs) Because like this, like Matt's sort of arc role thing he goes through in this episode is it really feels like he is torn between wanting to go out and be a traveler in the world and like reinvent himself for every new place that he is and then being torn between that and going back to take care of his sisters um because we sort of keep coming back to that with him um you know whenever he's in the bar he like introduces himself to dan he's like hey well back home like i was actually pretty rich Mm -hmm. um verse and then she's like why why do you need to go home and he's like oh right yeah, mm, mm, yeah. Mm. Mm. There's the cool bit when he's talking to Dana, um, when he's talking about where they're from. He's like, we're from two, and he almost says two rivers. And I think mm-hmm. like he's like, you know, we're from two, um, where exactly in my notes do I have it said? Um, basically, he like, you know, kind of like smoothly says, "I what what exactly is the name of the town? He says, I don't think it's like super like Bearlon or something. that they're from Bearlon. Bearlon, that's what it is. Um. It's like this nice, you know, it's like clearly he's like trying to be a little cagey despite mm. very much trying to like sleep with Dana. Yeah, yeah. And like I also noticed like with his like lying skills being like, they are, they're not so great because like he's talking to Tom and he's like, I didn't survive Trollocs just to get to die at the hands of a singer, yeah. which first of all, that's pretty funny. And second of all, he just like d- admits to having seen Trollocs and Tom is like. <laughs> yeah, he has high charisma below deception. <laughs> Yeah, I love that about him. Well, and he's he's learning, right? Like in the two rivers, mm-hmm. he was the like he was the rogue, right? He was the pickpocket. Mm-hmm. He was probably the cleverest, trickiest guy around. And then the first thing that happens to him when he gets to this podunk mining town is that he gets pickpocketed by someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he meets someone who's like level thirty. Yeah, these there's always a bigger fish. Oh. When we were talking before about that air of mystery around Marilyn, uh, it made me think of what a good job they're doing of establishing just how sheltered these kids were in their community and how little they know about the world. And so 
Everything mm. feels big and mysterious, and anybody with any broader knowledge of the world feels almost superhuman. Yeah. Mm, mm. Which is a nice, like, that setup is going to help the progress of the story if they get enough seasons to follow that thread. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> another thing that uh, lends this air of mystique to Tom is kind of calling back to the first episode where we see the towers and we see the weird, like, crane logo on Rand's dad's sword is like he just has a regular normal modern acoustic guitar with him uh-huh. like it looks a little bit small but like you see him like tuning it and it's like it, it doesn't look I mean I don't know when the guitar was invented the acoustic guitar like if it's like how it is in its modern incarnation how old it is but like it, it does stick out, you know, it's like this normal, like I could go to Guitar Center and buy, you know, you can buy Tom Marilyn's guitar from Amazon's Wheel of Time today. Oh my God. It's another thing. It's like, don't huh, why? don't it's like, say that. They're going to do it. You can tell he's important because he has that. They're going to do that. You'll be able to buy it. Are you buying one, Tom? <laughs> Please do not allow me anywhere near music. <laughs> <laughs> Only in the editing sense. Um, Sorry. Sorry, Max. Um, We interrupted you. Did we? No, I, I was finished. Ah, oh, I see. Uh, I'll take that back. No, no apologies. Um, <laughs> the other thing about the story that sometimes gives me that feeling of timelessness or that feeling of temporal dislocation is a lot of Matt's lines, actually. Like a lot of his little quips yeah. and jokes feel very mm-hmm. not part of a fantasy story. It just feel yeah. like some guy shooting the shit. <laughs> there was something he said, um, which I really... Because, yeah, like he... Go, like Rand gets assigned the Captain America wood chopping scene and he's doing that and then Matt goes inside and like becomes weird stuff and like he gets like you know Dana like makes fun of him and stuff and you know the patrons kind of follow on and when he's serving them drinks they're like hey like what's a beard doing on a a, a, a waitress and he says like oh well I lost my ra- blunted my razor shaving your mom's back and that's just like it's so like, like Twitter reply guy <laughs> or something. Mm-hmm. Like he, Matt feels like a gamer. <laughs> well, that's, or, that's a mean thing to say about Matt. Listen, this gamers I like. I'm looking at you, Max. <laughs> I I loved Matt and Rand's banter, especially the part when Matt is like, "Oh, are you gonna try to be funny now?" Yeah. <laughs> oh no. It's my job. <laughs> I, I that bit was just so funny because what was leading up to it, the line where Matt, you know, they're they're walking across the Misty Mountains, they're walking across like the exact mountain range that the the uh, fellowship walked through to get to Moria, like, and you know, Matt's complaining about being cold, and Rand, of course, has that really nice plush-looking coat, and Rand is like, "Oh, think of the stories you'll be able to tell in the future." Matt Cawthon, who once was a bit chilly, it's like just the dialogue is so like. You can tell that they're like they've been friends for such a long time. They like you know just poke fun at each other so easily like that. Yeah, it's like that that like lads who are friends who like on the surface level they're just mean to each other all the time. Mm-hmm. But like it's it's a thin veneer and like underneath that they're just like inseparable. Mm-hmm. Like half of the pot agreed hosts. It's one of those like oh yeah they're all twenty moments. Yeah. Yeah. Well, or the or the gag about. We'll take it in turns. Oh, do you think she'd be in? <laughs> the wood, Matt. <laughs> uh, it's, it's good. I just, the writing is so great. Yeah, yeah. They're just, they're just guys being dudes. Yeah. Just guys being dudes. 
Um, I did think the specific way the group got split up obviously maximizes the drama because mm -hmm. if these were other combinations, things would be very different. Like, yeah. Yeah. can you imagine Perrin bantering with anybody? Yeah. Yeah, but again, like, I can also imagine... I, I I seen it like a world in which like they have that combination and like in this show especially like Matt is able to like provide Perrin the support he needs in this time until he's not. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I'm not saying anymore. <laughs> um, or or just like you know like a random egg pairing and like that would be such like it, it would all be kind of like. I would all. I feel like there's not like a pairing that I wouldn't enjoy. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Well, but those other pairings would, like, in some ways they would be too good, or they would be too mm. like it would. If if Rand and Egg were paired, now I'm doing it. If Rand and Egwene were paired together, <laughs> uh, it would be too easy for them to actually reach a resolution of their their conflict. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We can't have too much communication now. That's something needs to like simmer and and get really rancid before they can deal with it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and like in some ways, like Perrin being separated from like his bros is like yeah. another like because we have a moment of like Egwene being like, "Oh, I have to go home." Like Rand's going to go home, while just juxtaposed with the scene of Rand being like, "I have to go to the White Tower." Egwene's going to go to the White Tower, and then we think like for like about one minute only, we think like, "Oh no, they're going to go in like cross directions," but then it's Perrin who jumps in and is like, "No, I know Rand. Rand mm -hmm. is going to go where he thinks you're going to go." Um, so it's like you know that's showing that like Perrin has a very deep bond with with Rand, and then we getting a sense of them as like a trio, seeing like Matt's and Rand's banter. You can imagine that they have like a similar connection with their third friend Perrin. So it's like we get what we get to see then is Perrin isolated from that. Mm -hmm. And maybe like for Perrin, the big conflict is still that he hasn't told anybody. Like he's still holding this this bad yeah. thing in deep inside of him. And if it were him paired up with one of these two guys who knows him so well, you know, you can imagine Matt being like, something is weird about Perrin. Like this is not how Perrin should be re reacting. Yeah, like they'd winkle it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because, yeah, like, um, I think, like, Rand does notice there's something a bit weird about Matt. Like, before the, like, Captain America woodchopping part, Rand's like, bro, like, what's up with you? Like, there's something up with you. Mm -hmm. Well, Matt has that one moment. I mean, it's subtle, but Matt has that that one moment where he gets really mean. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, she wouldn't come for you. It's, like, bitter. And it feels like it crosses a, an actual line. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, when you're sort of lads with someone, you know exactly how mean you can be to them and it still be a bit... But like he crosses into like he goes outside the bit. Yeah. And and that was the last time that they kind of interact outside of like a crisis situation. Like, yeah, because afterwards, that's when Matt goes and hangs out with Dana and then goes and tries to steal the gem from the Aiel. And like at that point, Rand is with Dana the entire time. So like when they meet up again, it's Rand running through the streets for his life being like, hey, let's fucking go. <laughs> Yeah. So, like, it's still something they can call back to in the next episode of being like, hey, why are you so pissy? It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of uh, callbacks. So, I think, um, Tom, you mentioned last episode, the way people talk to Perrin makes it seem like some of them, like, they don't know that he killed his wife. But the way and the frequency with which they bring up that, hey, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, ma makes it seem like they do. And that scene with Perrin and Egwene where she's just telling him over and over again, it's not your fault. I'm like, 
are we sure she doesn't know? Because she's just like holding him and like telling him it's okay. And like Perrin's heart is probably like just completely shattering in that moment. Like the pain he must be going through hearing that is like terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And it it, it is, it, it sounds so much like she knows. Mm-hmm. But again, it's like, I don't know if she knows or if she just knows what he needs to hear at that moment. Yeah. But at the same time, like, it, it feels a bit like he would have gotten the words out if she had stopped talking. Mm-hmm. It's weird. It's just, it, it, it feels like somehow someone knows more than they should. I don't know. Mm. It, it's probably just mm. that, like, they can tell that he's having such a hard time with it. And I assume that she means, like, it's not your fault that you couldn't protect her. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which makes it that much more twisting the knife without even realizing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. Twisting the axe. Speaking, <laughs> speaking of Perrin and great Perrin moments, I love that even though he's probably made fires like hundreds of times before, they're so nervous and tired yeah. that he cuts himself trying to get the fire started. I thought that was a nice touch. I was really afraid that like he was going to end up like hurting himself more or accidentally like hurting Egwene or something because like he's just like going at it so hard. And that leads to like that nice scene of it felt a little not unearned, but we see Egwene calm down and try and coax some of the one power out to help light the fire. And like there's a line of parents saying, was that me or you? And she just kind of chuckles and it's like both diffuses the tension and also kind of calls back to like what Moraine taught her in the woods. You can just kind of like calm down and feel the world around you. It's a Mm -hmm. nice little build up moment. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's... That's probably the only significant Egwene moment we get this yeah. episode. Um, she sort of takes a big backseat here. Yeah. Um, but God, that like that particular parent moment, like I was incredibly relatable to me because like that is exactly what I get like anytime I'm trying to like do something in an incredibly high stress situation. Like I'm just like I cannot do it, and all I can do is apologize which makes me more frustrated mm-hmm. and it just like sends me into a spiral and like, I'm just like Egwene is it Egwene is really there to stop Perrin spiraling yeah i think um we do actually thinking still about Perrin and Egwene we do get some more like wolf stuff cuz i think Perrin or Egwene outright says like hey Perrin i think those wolves like let us here uh what's up with that and then he also sees the wolf in his freaky forge dream Oh yeah, mm-hmm. that dream actually. I've I've started noticing like I don't know if it was in any the other dream from last episode because I think the last episode dream we sort of weren't supposed to know it was a dream until he pulls a fucking bat out of his throat. But like this dream, because we know that dreams are a thing now, and we know he's in a dream. Like the way the focus is done, where only he is in focus, like mm. everything else in the forge is like out of focus or in soft focus or just kind of blurry, and it. It, it's a really good way of capturing that like dream like mm-hmm. the way that a dream is mm-hmm. um and even just the contrast of like him being clean in the dream his clothes yeah. being pristine like so completely different from mm-hmm. how he looks in the reality where they're running away mm. um mm. i love that you can in the, in that dream you can see the like burning eyes through the yeah. window there's such a yeah. creepiness to it that it's just wordlessly he's like just like blinking in and out like as the lightning strikes or his parent moves in front of the window it's just like like 
like I looked at it and like I like goosebumps a little bit because like there you know there's this very primal fear of like looking and just seeing a pair of eyes. I'm like, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. he's sickos. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes. He's just standing there watching through the window. The dark one is just the sickos emoji looking in at the like guy's dream. <laughs> um, it's even yeah perfect actually <laughs> see that, that that's the real like plan of the dark one never mind like all the stuff about breaking the wheel like he's just the sickos guy <laughs> okay now i'm like i'm imagining expanding on the meme like if i take that entire kelly panel and make all the people inside like the kids from two rivers i'm gonna, I'm gonna work. <laughs> write that down yeah for, i'm working on for, this later we'll Don't post worry. it to the twitter yeah. <laughs> um, content but <laughs> content um but like about that um dark one shot in the window i think like it's moments like that where he's just like in the window and you kind of blink and you miss him flickering in and out that are really i think far more effective than the like sort of scary jump scare where he's like completely in the camera like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I- that felt like that kind of broke the tension of the like the dream sequence for me yeah it would have um, been a much better scene if they hadn't done that if they had just yeah. if they had just kept him in the window Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you get the scare of Layla being like, "Hi!" Like just looking up at him with those like yeah. dead, glossy eyes and like mm-hmm. sausage what? casing spilling out of her. And we've already got the like <laughs> ick factor of the wolf chewing yeah. on her bits. Mm, snack. It was a gory episode. Just a whole butcher shop's worth of sausage. They really are making me eat my words of saying the gore isn't really gratuitous in this show. <laughs> Next episode, something say- terrible is going to happen. I'm sure. Whenever I did bring up like, oh, this show's a lot gorier than I in like the first episode, like I had seen this episode. So it I was probably thinking of like these mm-hmm. two episodes yeah. as well as just the first one. Um when that was in my mind. Mm. Um For whatever reason, this one didn't make me recoil in the same way that the second episode did. Something about mm. the and, and it was like specifically something about the white cloaks really gets under my skin. Yeah. Yeah, it's like how clean everything else is that really highlights the gore to it. I mean, yeah, like because the, the <laughs> sorry, I was just gonna say, Tom, the reason the white cloaks get under your skin is because you grew up in a deeply religious small town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's something about the like the the like self righteousness of them, the absolute confidence that what they're doing is right, no matter how grotesque and horrible. Yeah, whereas the the violence in this. Sorry, the violence in this is much more like carnage. Like the the Trolloc at the start feels like it's ripping out entrails because it's in its animal bestial nature to do so. And like same with the wolf almost. It's like Yeah, wolves get hungry, they need to eat. Yeah. Yeah. Circle of life. The funny thing with the Trollocs though is that initially you're not sure what's going to happen. One of them is clearly wounded and it almost looks like the other one's like checking in with them yeah. or going to help them. And yeah, that's, yeah. Hey, buddy. Get you. And then he turns on him and starts ripping his guts out and eating them. Yeah, and, and it's like I, I become Michael Bluth. I don't know what I expected. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the thing about this scene is we get kind of an up, like this is one of the first up close kind of static shots of a Trolloc where they're not running around. The camera's not cutting quickly. We can actually look at it. Yeah. Um, and I was kind of disappointed. Mm. I wanted it to be more animalistic, more bestial. 
Um, and it it just mm. kind of looks like a messed up guy. That's the thing, right? <laughs> it's just a fucked up guy. Yeah, it's like I, I get what you mean, Tom. Where they look better in motion, they look better in these big crowd shots where you just like see like these vague misshapen outlines of horns and claws and like mats of fur, and then you get close and it's like, okay, that's just like yeah, that's, it's a big guy with a lot of pro- like makeup and prosthetics on him. Mm. It still looks good. It still looks creepy, but like it, it Trollocs work better like when they have their sort of whole group with them to kind of like mm-hmm. put the fear of numbers in you. Yeah, I mean like same with the Balsman shots or the the Dark One dreams. Like mm-hmm. it works better when it's just a flicker and you can't really see yeah. it. And like once you see it up close, you're like, oh, that's just a guy with fire in his mouth. Mm-hmm. Oh cool. He he had a spicy gum. <laughs> that's just a guy who <laughs> Mamma Mia <laughs> That's a spicy dark one. <laughs> <laughs> And the Trollocs are all different, right? Maybe this was just the a, a particularly messed up guy looking kind of Trolloc. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. But in my imagination, like the head shape is a lot more like cows and dogs and like bears and animals, mm. not just like mm-hmm. the roughly the shape of a human head, but with some cosmetic yeah. cow bits. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're like a bit more like fursuit in my mind as well. <laughs> What's your trollic sona? Um, <laughs> my my well wait no that's I was gonna say my trollic sona is the post the picture that Daniel Henny posted but that's 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 my trollic boyfriend. How come every single like photo from this show could could be a face app smile? It's <laughs> like so good. I love just trollic cheese. He's having a good day. I'm just so I just love seeing like the monsters behind the scenes just like giving thumbs up. And I shit. know right? it's, it's great. Like that's what I like to see. Like the 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 start of the you know when they're static in the show, you know, and then you're kind of disappointed. But like when when it's out of context of the show, you're like, that's the best thing I've ever seen in my life. It's like the photo of Ian McDermott as Palpatine in Stars episode three, where he's just like wearing <laughs> Ray Bans. Yeah. Is a Trolloc Sona just like a troll OC? Oh fuck! Thank you. Oh shit! Oh fuck! We can end the podcast now. <laughs> yeah, shout out to whoever it was who thought was reading our podcast title and was like, "Why are you talking about your homestuck troll OCs?" Never mind the troll OCs. <laughs> Never mind. The troll- <laughs> yeah, th- thank thank you, Danny from the Pot of Greed Discord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but coming back to the um the trollosy moment from the cold open of the show when they are the moment when you're like oh are they nice actually and then no trollosies are never nice um okay i'm completely done with a bit but i just think that that like have establishing it's like stuff like um like D orcs and like discussion around them and around race and how it's really fucked up to um have like a race of like playable characters with like thoughts and feelings and motivations and then just be like ah these people are all evil like that's mm-hmm. just like a purely like racist notion so like having this in the show to be like yes we have considered that okay maybe do the trollocs have a culture and civilization and this is it like slaps like a very firm palm down on the no button mm-hmm. and like makes things really clear for the rest of yeah. the, the series and show which mm-hmm. i think is very necessary right and it certainly helps that like they're decidedly animalistic right like they don't mm. seem to have a language of any sort they don't seem to like have really any kind of communication they're just like 
being led by the Fade, commanded by the Fade. They're just like, they're essentially animals that walk on two legs, from what they can tell. Yeah. And, and not all of them walk on two legs. Some yeah. of them have so much animal in their legs that they have to go on, on all fours. Yeah. Speaking of Trollocs, um, this can lead into talking about the girl boss of the week, Nynaeve. Because <gasps> after, after a Trolloc has his fun sausage snack... <laughs> Uh, Nynaeve runs to the safety of that the sort of like ceremonial ritual pool mm-hmm. in Two Rivers. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, we, we get a scene of it. It's, you know, searching for her and it stabs the water and it gets in and she like pulls its knife and takes it down. And I might be reading into this way too much. I might be trying to do too much analysis here. But I feel like there's both sort of like external and internal symbolism in this scene. Because the external obviously being she stabs a Trolloc and this sort of like ritual pool is like tainted with the blood of evil or whatever right but and again this is this could be like way too big of a leap when she gets out of the water she kind of whips her hair around and then her braid goes completely out of sight you can't see like this this main sort of the symbol of two rivers that all the women have the braid it's like you can't see it at all like so both like the the pool is tainted with the blood and then it's like it's not like she's not a part of the two rivers anymore Mm -hmm. but like it's like she has her own journey at this point now Mm. Should we mark that down as a prediction? Nynaeve is going to have her own journey. Ooh, um, I'm ready to type. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that because I I don't want her to. I mean, I like her with with Lan and Moraine, but I feel like she's gonna bounce as soon as she possibly can when they can like give her a lead on how to find the other kids. Oh, as far as is is we're doing predictions. Um, since we're probably done talking about uh, Tom Maryland, that dude is definitely not gonna make it to the end of the series. He's going to exist as like a mentor, like a Boromir, and he's going to get got. I am confident on that one. Mm-hmm. What about Tom Baltimore? Um, <laughs> Wait, that's not a state. That's a city. It's a smaller Tom inside Tom, Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's Tom's pilot. There are two Toms inside you. You are of the state of Maryland. <laughs> Meet Tom. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is really fun uh, for me. Keep going. I like our energy today. <laughs> Yeah, I can't, I can't wait till we meet Nina Texas next episode. <laughs> Not where I'm from. Ah. Um, fuck. Um, speaking of Nynaeve and that intro scene, like, I think there is, like, definitely a space to be critical of terms like girl boss and women being epic by being hyper violent and i don't think it's here because i am simply <laughs> sitting here barking <laughs> I, i'm like hooting and hollering and like pointing and saying epic girl boss and loving every minute of it even more than her taking out the trolloc though for me is the fact that she's not really afraid of lan or moraine that oh my God. Lance shock when she actually tries to stab him is mm-hmm. like, yeah. And and then even after he grabs her, she doesn't stop fighting him. She bites him. Like, uh, yeah, some things about her seem sort of Aes Sedai-like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like when she tells Lan he can ask her questions and then she's like, but I didn't say I would answer that. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like... The, the dynamic between her and Lan is very, like, immovable force meets unstoppable object. Sort of, like, they're both just, like... They're on the same level. Like, yeah. it, it's not yeah. really quantifiable, but, like, I would describe Nynaeve as she can hang. Like, she she is able, like, Lan is this, like, 
stoic badass can do anything type character and Nynaeve appears and she's like yeah I can do all that too and it's just like she just completely matches him at every step it's great yeah he does it in a very stoic way but I love how unsettled he is that she tracked him like that's not yeah. supposed to be possible yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> how, how did you do that and <laughs> there's a really nice subtle thing with he watches her so closely he's never hostile openly hostile towards her because like you know, when she wakes up after being bound to the tree, he just walks over and like gives her water. And like, you know, he's not like mean or anything where she's like, he's like hey, you got to drink this. Um, and then I think once he finally realizes like, OK, yeah, she may be like kind of what she's doing is painful to Moraine. But like that's because she has trollic poison in her. Like once he kind of can like fully confirm that, OK, she is helping her like he's going to dip and he's going to like, you know, scout around. And it's like that nice moment of him like finally realizing like after seeing an action, he's like, OK, I can trust Nynaeve. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It was also seeing Nynaeve in her green coat in that very mossy, very green part of the woods that made me suddenly notice something they were doing with costuming in this episode really strongly where uh, like Matt and Perrin and Egwene all sort of blend in to the places that they are. Um, and and you well, can tell and, that this was done in post because there's two scenes next to each other. Egwene is in both of them, wearing the same coat in both of them. And one of them, it's very brown because the environment is brown. And one of them, it's very red. Mm. Mm, I didn't notice that. But yeah, and then we have Nynaeve in this very green coat in this very green place. And the people who stick out are Moraine in blue, Lan in black, and Rand in blue. Mm. Like that blue doesn't blend in (laughs) anywhere. No. You see, I noticed that with his like tan orange uh, sheepskin mm. coat, like because like it's not a very bright garment, like it's pretty dull. But it's like he goes there in this like mining town where everyone is like almost like comedically covered in like black smears gray. and shades of gray monochrome, and it's just like again he stands out like an anime protagonist in this particular town. And they sort of lampshade that in this episode with the Aiel. When Tom oh, is like, oh, you never see hair that color outside of the waists," And then we do a close up of yeah. the hair, like some strands of red hair. And I feel like yeah. it cross cuts to Matt also. And you can see like the wheels turning <laughs> in Matt's mm. head. Like, oh, <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Mm. Speaking of, oh, go ahead. I was also going to say, speaking of special rant moments. I was going to say, speaking of things that aren't very subtle. So you do special rant moments. Mm. Both can be true. See, I- I was going with like another um, Captain Manetheran moment that he has when he breaks down the door that can't be broken down by three men. Yeah. Hmm. What could this mean? I'm sure it's fine. He's just, he just did it. It's normal. He's been eating his vegetables. He's a big boy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He's a farmer. I really like the sort of like, uh, Dana's actress is great. Mm. And that like sort of like shocked, surprised look. She like, it's a really subtle look. But when he hits the door and you see like rubble start falling from the scene, she's like, like, she's she giving a very subtle, like, uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah, I like the way... Sorry. No, it's fine. I just loved her character so much and the way they use her to introduce, like, the concept of the Dark Friends and how mm-hmm. how likable they make her and how much characterization they give her. And we really get to know her yeah. before mm-hmm. we find out that, oh, actually... I call my Twitter followers Dark Friends. It's all, it's all evil on that website. <laughs> Um, yeah, next week I'm introducing the episode of uh, What the Fuck is Up, Dark Friends. Oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, 
this uh, speaking introducing dark friends actually kind of um maybe remember like a sort of vague theory that it had in episode one whenever um parents wife was being like shifty like i was wondering if she was like guilty for something because like she was a dark friend and like had sold them out or something so like that is sort of like a wee theory that i have i think if it came true maybe i'll put that down in sarah predictions um (laughs) but yeah i feel like if it came true i would be like a little disappointed for a giving him a wife fridging the wife Oh, also the wife was evil. So yeah. mm. it takes too I'm many putting that down as a theory, but I don't want it to be true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Those are my least favorite theories. The one where you're like, mm, this is plausible, mm. but I really hope they don't go that way. It's like people predicting the next Smash Bros character. It's probably gonna be something I don't like. <laughs> something that Dana mentions, if we're, if we're on the topic of her. Yeah. Um, when she when the facade drops after she tries to kiss Rand and locks the door in that little storehouse, she's like, I've seen the five of you in my dreams. And I'm like, counting on my fingers. Hold on. Um, Part of me thinks the guy we see at the end of this episode is not one of those five. It almost seems too convenient. Oh, the guy in the cage. Yeah, the guy in the cage with the ornate robes that looks extremely evil, like tilting his head down, glaring at the camera. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> He's doing the like uh two thousand and eight internet I could be your devil. I could be I you could be devil your, or you were angle. <laughs> like a pose. <laughs> He's like I'm I'm super freaking twisted. Don't mess with me. Yeah. The darkness within I'm on a forum site in two thousand seven. My handle's the dragon reborn. It's like, alright man, cool. God. XX underscore dragon yeah, reborn. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my favorite vegan character, Sephiroth. <laughs> the uh, the actress who plays Dana does a great job of going from like grumpy small town bard maid to at the very end, like full on crazy eyes cultist. The, the most effective part of her entire performance, I think, is how she's running in the street after Rand and Matt. The way she's like, like with a purpose, it is like genuinely freaky and swinging that sword around, like yeah. It cannot be easy to run that way. No, um, absolutely yeah. not. Or safe. Yeah, and I I thought she gave a pretty compelling like presentation, I guess, on the uh, mm-hmm. on why she became a dark friend. Like, yeah, here she is in this terrible town, and she wants to get out. She wants to be bigger. She wants to be great. Mm-hmm. But also, she just wants the like the suffering to end. She wants it to be over. That's the thing. I one of one of my favorite tropes is actually what you think the good guys are, the bad guys, and what you think the bad guys are, the good guys. And I, you know, sure, certainly that's going to get really uh, developed over time. But like some of my favorite games writings do that. Like it is such an easy thing. I feel like all I talk about is like how this show takes such low hanging fruit of these easy overdone tropes, but it's still good and it's still fresh, just because I guess it's like the novel presentation of it. Mm, mm, mm. And it helps that we already don't entirely trust the Aes Sedai. Yeah. Like, Moraine is so cagey all the time. And from what we've seen of the red Aes Sedai, like, we're already skeptical. Mm-hmm. So the idea that maybe that they aren't actually the good guys is pretty convincing. I was actually mm-hmm. a little bit surprised, um, both in the first episode and in this one, with how sort of accepting and um, understanding the two rivers people are of the wisdoms using the power. Like Nynaeve knows that the former wisdom 
went to the White Tower once she discovered she could listen to the wind. So like they know that there's a connection between listening to the wind and the power. Mm. And then mm. Perrin is not at all surprised when Egwene like channels some fire to keep them warm. Yeah. And you yeah. With the way other people talk about the Aes Sedai, and even the way they talk about the Aes Sedai, I would have expected more like fear and horror and a uh, a reluctance to accept that what they are doing is the same thing. Yeah, whereas Perrin is like, what, can you channel us some food and water? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like, you know, they, the fear of the Aes Sedai comes from their like institutional position. Um, yeah, which I, I feel like connects to like the White Cloaks like as an institution and mm-hmm. like yeah which kind of um brings a bit of new context to like what dana says about like she's in this like shit ass town like she's having a shit time and i'm like oh the oppressed unwashed masses hmm, is this like mean? is this sort of what we're going for but yeah all like all the stuff she says there is like super relevant super relatable and like when she's talking about like just like break the wheel and it all and you're you're kind of like, Yeah, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> are you? <laughs> are you are you? <laughs> but just like you see where she's coming from. And like she's not just she's not just like a crazy person. She has a thing that she wants, which is a sort of legit thing to want. It's just that she's been like fucked up by her dreams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and it contrasts with the sort of um, wise mentor scene from the first episode when they're lighting the lanterns and Rand's father is saying, you know, there must be a reason why people can't remember their prior lives. Like the wheel turns and the world keeps going on and we try again each time and mm. we try to do a little bit better than last time. There are two different ideas about this, like this yeah. cycle and what it means for people. Mm. Yeah. Brick die wheel, my final message. <laughs> or the wheel is a gift yeah yeah and again like we we get a little more because like rand speaks about the wheel as well here where he's like well i never really thought about the wheel like i'm just trying to do my best and like we get like a nice sort of peek at like rand's sort of like soft boy little darling interior where he's just trying to be nice um in a sort of quite naive little way um hmm. Yeah. Um, where have we ended up? We've talked about Tom with an H. We've stand naive. We have um, yet to talk about the travelers. <laughs> did you say travelers? I did. The tinkers, the Tuatha. Tinker Tuatha and spy. Tinker Tuatha and spy. Tinker Tuatha and soldier spy. Uh huh. Um. Yeah. What are our first impressions of them? I don't know if they should have dreadlocks. <laughs> yeah, I really like. I hate when shows do this because I'm like, okay, well, like you know, at least let's like they all have dreadlocks and they're all different races. But I'm just like, we don't need a because Witcher did this. Witcher did this as well, where there was like a group of like forest druid people and like who the costume person or hair person had made the decision of like using dreadlocks as like a signifier of like wildness yeah i mm. really do not like that trope it's i just like can we not do that mm-hmm. that's a really tricky position for them to be in when you're doing this kind of like pastiche of different cultures across time and like the aiel guy is a redheaded white dude dressed like a bedouin arab yeah or like a Qin Dynasty Chinese soldier, um, mm-hmm. and like 
those mixtures of, of cultural influences can be done well and can be done really poorly. I don't think they pull it off with the hair. <laughs> Could, like, with the, like, Tuatha An being, like, a single unified cultural group, they all have this same hairstyle, which the hair people have been like, okay, dreadlocks. If, say, for instance, all the Two Rivers people, like, their sort of cultural unifying thing had had been all having dreadlocks, like, it would still be, like, a little iffy, but it would sit better with me because the Two Rivers people are not being portrayed as being like, ooh, the wild traveling people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's honestly not so much that like they're putting white people in dreadlocks, although that just still suck. But the thing that I hate the most about it is because they're using it to signify like almost like unculturedness. Mm. Like <sighs> and it's just because like that was the same thing it was trying to signify in um Witcher. Mm -hmm. It was like, this is a group of people who live outside of society. What worries me about it, too, is that their whole thing is like they're kind of a traveling caravan. Mm -hmm. And I worry that that's going to kind of invite people to use a certain slur to describe them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, like a a lot of theirs very reminiscent of Romani. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's so thin. Like their their carriages Mm -hmm. are literally just like traveler carriages like mm-hmm. they're not even like read it like you know like the two the two rivers had this these very like sort of carefully culturally mixed like redesigned of like houses which weren't like little thatched cottages but still invoked cottages but sort of also invoked like log houses like it, but like the twelfth those are just like traveler caravans those are just that's just yeah. that's just a robo wagon yeah. that's just mm-hmm. a wagon I just am really worried I'm going to see people referring to these people as G-slur with dreadlocks. And it's like, I don't want to have to, you know, <laughs> give so many caveats and explain all this stuff about the show, you know? Mm-hmm. I feel like a, a, a very sort of service level read is going to people not understanding why that could be harmful. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, like, I really want to like the Twathan. Like, Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I like them. It th- It's more like their actions, like this very nice... These are some crazy kids we found lost, freaked out in a forest. Let's give them a nice home-cooked meal. Let's give them some mac and cheese or something. Like, it's nice. I was surprised to hear Sarah say that you saw them as uncivilized or uncultured because they really feel like in this episode, like, they have a very distinct, friendly, welcoming culture. And, like, they're they're very organized. And I think I get what Sarah meant, though, because... there are strong associations. Yeah, like, I, I sort of mean, like, civil in the way that it means buildings and stuff. You know? Like, <laughs> the the very, like, racist Western definition of civilization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, like, they are, they're very cultured mm-hmm. from what we do. The, like, their introduction is of, they have, like, this little ritual. I love the implication that if they ever meet someone who does know the song then they stop journeying then that's it yeah yeah that that was a that's a cool little wrinkle that adds into it and that like uh i forgot the name of the leader but that she literally won't respond unless like someone either says the right thing or uh the other guy tells them how to respond because no one could reasonably be you know no one well no one would know how to respond in any other circumstance yeah. tom Marilyn would know tom yeah <laughs> um and you can be Mayor Tom. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, maybe Tom 
Marilyn would also just know the song. But yeah, the again, the other thing about the Tinkers is that like the way that the guy do we get his name this episode? We get we Aram. get the names of the three main ones. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like the way Aram like when. Egwene and Perrin are like, so who, who the fuck are you guys? And he's like, Aquil doesn't have a reputation as like horse thieves and like the people that steal your children <laughs> in the night precede us. And it's just like, again, like they're listing every single like Roma stereotype. You're laying on a little thick. And I'm just like, <laughs> Sarah, this is an audio medium. You can't just make faces at the camera. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> Listeners, I was making many faces at the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, faces of disapproval. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were just like funny, like faces. <laughs> um, I just did a funny face there. It was really funny. You'll you'll never know. What you had it to was. be there. You had to be there. Um, but yeah, apart from that, we don't get that much of them. Mm-hmm. I suspect I next episode is going to be a lot of what their deal is. Yeah. I, I don't know. I've I've not seen it. That's true. This is a lie. I did I did watch it. I had a <gasps> watch party um, on Friday. Sorry. Now everybody else is making disapproving faces. Yeah. <laughs> um. What else have we got? Uh, Tuathan. We've talked about Gore. We've talked about Nya. Um. Is there anything else we want to say about the Tinker costumes? Mm. Other than just how, listen, they look great. Um. And actually, um, moving from Tuatha'an, do we have anything else to say about the Aiel, who are kind of like the other, like, not quite present, but group that, like, racial group that we learn exists this episode? Other than their gingers? (laughs) I I think we need to punt this one to Max because we know too much. Yeah, anything that we say will just just mm-hmm. explaining Aiel lore. <laughs> I'll, I'll stumble blindly in the dark here. Um it always makes me a little wary when I see a show use like you know, a very thinly veiled analogy of of real world racism. Thinly veiled. <laughs> well, it's like Don't worry about it, keep talking. He the Aiel is clearly, like, lynched, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, Tom mentions, like, yeah, they basically killed him because of what they believed Aiel to be. And that really strikes me as something to be very, very careful of when the person who is at the violent end of of this racism is very pale and white. Mm-hmm. Like, mm. I, I'm like, what, mm, like, I get what they're going for, but at the same time, it's like, I it it's hard. It's really hard to write racism into a show like this. But um, what Tom also mentions that the Aiel are from like a, a threefold land. Um, part of me wonders if that's some kind of like um, like ancestral territory reclamation type thing. Like if people are warring over who owns or who is really from where the Aiel are from. Um, I mean, as of now, we because. All we know is that, oh, it's a dead Aiel. Um, the, mm-hmm. the sort of crystal on his hip interested me as well. Because it, it's the kind of thing, you look at it, and in a real world context, this is something I could buy for $5 at a craft fair. <laughs> like, it's just like a piece of, like, rose quartz with, like, some little, like, copper wire spooled around it. Um, but, you know, clearly a very valuable item in this world. Um <sighs> 
my my gamer instinct is to think that this is something that it's like oh it's a crystal i played final fantasy it's a conduit for magic um probably not especially if that since that was a male aiel imagine you know do you charge him that crystal up with his bros yes i wasn't gonna go there i'm glad you did <laughs> i was um but it's 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 nice to see that you know he's honored by tom all right. I guess it, it is more useful to call him Marilyn because otherwise things could get maybe confusing. Um, no, I, I, I honor this Aiel too. Yeah. Um, and it's like, I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm eager to meet an actual community of Aiel in the show and to see how they interact with people because we the two rivers folk, they don't know about Aiel. So mm. I would like to see, you know, the kids meet them without any preconceived racist notions and see how that goes versus how they are met with by other people. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It, again, it is like we're still three episodes and getting a lot of interesting setup for either later in the season or later in the series that can definitely pay off well if they do it sensitively enough without making me once again think, well, uh, uh, I know what you're going for, but I'm making a yikes face. Yeah. Because it's like I can't, I, like I don't even like I was considering doing a bit about ah uh, the anti ginger racism that I experience every day of my life, but like that is like in the actual context of the show, like nah, this just that, that just sucks. That nah. <laughs> I will. I I did say something very funny in Discord, and I said Sarah's from Northern Ireland. Yeah, yeah, and then I said that the the threefold land is the the land warred over by the IRA, UVF, and the British Army. Um, yeah, funny. Uh, which I, I'm not sure if that sort of was what gave you the impression that the threefold land was some kind of contested ancestral uh, location. Okay. Um, <laughs> sorry about it. I have. Whoops. I am. I am a a soft, malleable baby head right now. Anything you say <laughs> um, will color my future thoughts of the series. Yeah. I think we should simply say that um, I think dealing with the source texts, the source texts, texts is such a hard <laughs> word to use. I think uh, I think dealing with the books um, use of fantasy racism is going to be one of the biggest challenges that the show encounters. Tremendous. Mm. Yeah. Fantasy racism is going to be tough. And I like what they've been doing with uh, like race in the casting but i think in some ways it is going to make it harder actually for them to Mm -hmm. like reconcile the books and what happens in the books and the way people are described in the books with the show Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah because it yeah it's very much like you live in a village with people or like the mining village you mine with people of like every variety of skin tone every shape Mm -hmm. of eye every size of whatever like and yet this one little signifier which is gingerness is the thing that like sets you off and makes you kill someone i mean in the aiel context it's i think it's easier in the aiel context because they have a very distinctive way of dressing yeah they have a very distinctive like cult they have all these cultural markers that can be the basis for that and it doesn't have to be skin color or any other like physical marker Marilyn even highlights that when he tells, well, Matt asks him, how can you tell that this man is Aiel? And he's like, well, with most people, uh, you can tell by their clothes where they're from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He actually says, besides clothes and accent, there isn't much you can use to tell where a person is from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which kind of reinforces how racially mixed most of the communities we've seen have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, because otherwise it would be like, why is no one attacking Rand for being ginger? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that is yeah. interesting that they brought the whole Aiel thing up. And so far, no one's brought that up to Rand. It's the kind of thing where it's like, now that we know about it, mm-hmm. maybe we'll get a point where someone like, you know, goes after Rand for being an Aiel. Yeah. But that wouldn't yeah. have been able to happen until we learn what an Aiel is. Yeah. He also doesn't dress like an Aiel at all. Mm. Which, and he doesn't have, if they have an accent, if they have a different language, mm-hmm. he doesn't have the accent. Uh, right. And so people may give him some funny looks, and he and Matt definitely catch looks as like strangers in this town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and um, the bit about Aiel being redheaded, that comes from Tom, who's very worldly, very well traveled, and uh, very wise. Mm-hmm. But the Aiel is wearing like a headscarf that covers yeah. the hair almost completely. So, yeah, yeah. like the people in this mining town, this is probably the first Aiel they've ever seen. And. Most people may not even know that, like, red hair is a typical Aiel trait. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, like, like, like Tom's point is more, like, people fear things they don't know about. Are we ready for the spoiler zone? Uh, no, I actually have one <gasps> more little thing that I want to discuss, um, which is whenever uh, Dana gives um, uh, Rand and Matt a room... And and she's like, oh, nice thick walls. Mm. Like you can just have a bit of slap and tickle, and like no one will be able to hear you. Mm. And like it really like freaked me out. I like it was so weird to me. And like I have since thought about this and concluded that like the reason it was so weird to me is because I am so fucking used to like every time gayness is brought up on a TV show, it's either a joke. Or it's queer bidding. And this mm-hmm. was like like first of all, it was like plot relevant, like yeah. eventually. And like second of all, it was just like really like normal. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Even Rand's response to it, because he's not insulted that she thought that. He's mm-hmm. surprised. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes him a second to catch on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he makes the little joke about if I did like men, I think I could do better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, then whenever she has like trapped Rand in the room, she's she's like, like I said, no one can hear you scream. Mm-hmm. And it's like you realize that the reason that she said that thing about like, oh, are you guys not a couple was to like provide reason as to why she was putting them in a room with such heavy, thick walls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like so that Rand would what Rand was just like, oh, it's just like because she thought me and Matt were a couple. Haha, <laughs> how funny mm-hmm. is that? Psych. Um and I was just like, just, just, it was just because it was so weird to me. And I was like, oh, it's just because I've never fucking seen this before. Like, mm. no TV show has ever been fucking normal about gayness, <laughs> seemingly. So I like that a lot. It does establish that in a bunch of these places, that's not something like bad or even all that unusual. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for establishing that Ron is not a homophobe to me personally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's the last thing that I wanted to talk about. Yeah. All right, listeners. Um, Tom, it feels like we've been talking for a lot less time than we've been talking. <laughs> time flies. Yeah, time flies. We live time. Time uh, wheels along. <laughs> time when rolls. You're, time rolls. Uh, big wheel keep on spinning. You can't keep saying that. Thank you, listeners. 
for tuning in to our regularly scheduled episode of Nevermind the Trollocs. It has been a pleasure to have you here. Uh, you can find all the links and info about us in the description of the podcast. And with that, never mind the Trollocs. <laughs> Let's talk spoilers. Music. I'm changing my vibes. Uh oh. Getting rancid. (gasps) (gasps) Sarah. (laughs) Party on. I like that they're really committed to doing the uh, the apostrophe of foreshadowing. Uh, Because in this one, we get the sacred apostrophe. Mm-hmm. Uh, after Nynaeve kills the Trolloc. <laughs> Thank you, Tom, for the, the commitment to the bit. I'm going to do this every time. Every time. I'm going to find a way. Every time. Like, the next time it shows up, it'll be uh, a Dorstrophy. Uh, <laughs> we got to be on the lookout now. Yeah. A Dragonstrophy. Um, so, for, I think, my main thing that I want to talk about for um, Never Mind the Spoilers is that, hey, Max, I don't know if you, like, sensed any of this um, sexual tension between anyone in the the scenes here who may or may not end up together. What I'm saying is that Lan and Nynaeve do get together eventually. I can absolutely believe that. Like I said, they, she can hang. They're on the exact same level with each other. And no one else is on the level of Lan. There was someone in the Mobile Suit Breakdown Discord who has not read the books and uh, at this point in the show was like, oh yeah, they're going to get together, definitely. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, because like in the books, like they sort of meet like this and they don't really talk. And then it's like at the end of the first book, like he's like declaring his love for her and like they're suddenly a couple and like... God, I forgot that Robert, happened in the first book. That It's like yeah, Robert Jordan, like... Were you ever going to see any romance from this? Like, it was not, like, seeded at all. And, like, like, people, like, for the rest of the book, they're like, oh, the ultimate couple, like, they're so in love. And it's like, it's, it's like, I'm like, where did this come from? Like, where are their vibes together? And, like, here, I'm like, oh, my God, like, mm-hmm. their vibes. Bro, their vibes. I mean, that first book suffers so badly from I didn't know it was going to be a series syndrome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that kind of like rushing into the romantic resolution feels like a, a symptom of that. Yeah, yeah. So we mostly talked about this last week, but um, Sarah, you had mentioned the like potential colorism problems in the show. Mm-hmm. And I realized over the intervening week, thinking about it, the Shanchen Empress is going to be a problem, maybe. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, too on. Again, like... Because they could change, they could change that as well. They could, but then it feels because she's like, I mean, she's a capital P problematic character, but ultimately a kind of a positive one. And to like yeah. whitewash the blackest character in the books, yeah. Also, the fact that like all three of the major at first they seem good and then turn out to be evil characters have been black. Yeah, like that's not a very Patton good Fane, pattern. Valda, and Dana. What do you mean, Eamon Valda? At first, they seem good. Okay, I know the I know the show hasn't done this right, but in the in the books, at least, he seems like a like a very committed, like worships the light, 
fighting mm-hmm. the dark friends, like initially, right? Before, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, before the creepiness comes in. Yeah. There's a good 10 seconds in the show when you think he's just being happy and in a good mood. <laughs> but even he's like institutionally, he's like institutionally a good guy, right? Like, yeah, he has a position mm-hmm. in the like fantasy FBI. Uh, he's <laughs> they think he, he's like in society in that way, respected, etc. But also a totally evil motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that that. Every time they've done it, it's been a black actor. Yeah. Feels bad. Like I like I you know, I'm I'm gonna keep watching, like I'm willing to give them some hope. Like I do know that I think the actor for Loyal is like black and pretty dark skinned. Like, as far as I can remember. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm like, okay, like maybe that's like yeah, p- putting a feather on the other side of the scales, fucking and well, like I'm and pretty then- sure the <laughs> No, actually, like, because I in the Luz Theron, uh, breaking of the world opening, like Luz Theron was played by a black actor, but I don't think know that he was particularly dark skinned. Um, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, it's hard because they we want them to avoid this like moralistic colorism pitfall, but it's mm. also great to see dark skinned actors in these fun roles mm-hmm. even if they're villainous roles and they're all mm-hmm. killing it every yeah. one of these actors has been great in the role <laughs> they've all been so fucking good yeah. I, I feel like that's it, it's like it's such a problem to run into in that like a villain is able to be like much more like bombastic and immediately interesting than the main characters especially if mm-hmm. the villain's going to show up for one episode they have to have a more compressed arc so you can get a little nutty with the role <laughs> And it's like, it's it's good that, you know, people of color can play these roles, but at the same time that all the villains have been black actors. Like, well, hmm. Yeah, because, like, I would need to look more into the casting to see whether, again, was this completely a blind casting? Was it more selective? And I, I feel like in further discussion, if, like, this does t- turn out to be, like, a tr- not so much a trend, but, like, enough of a trend that it's noticeable... Like, I feel like Wheel of Time could take a place as, like, a case study argument, like, either, like, against blind casting or for, like, you need to think about, you need to hire a mm-hmm. sensitivity casting, whatever mm-hmm. you call it. It's probably got, like, a different name in movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, yeah. I mean, on the villain side, we do have Leandrin. Very pale. Uh, They, I don't think that actress is naturally that blonde so <laughs> yeah and the the children of the light are like 99% white dudes yeah mm-hmm. yeah um yeah sort of waffo watch and find out yeah mm. um that line from tom about not being able to tell where a person is from except for their accent and their clothing does signify that this is something the show is thinking about yeah, like I did not notice that line. This feels like like none of this is accidental. They know mm. that they're doing something. They know that they're doing something difficult, and they've they've chosen you know their path, and they're they're going to do their best with it. Mm-hmm. And we'll see how well that works for them, how well it lands. Mm. Mm. <laughs> um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about in Never Mind the Spoilers, if we're finished here, um, is that I like how much this episode emphasizes that Matt is torn between wanting to go home to take care of his sisters and then wanting to go and 
be a, the free-spirited gambler that he sees in Tom. Um, because I feel like in the books, like Matt, as soon as he left the Two Rivers, like he couldn't care less about going back. He just wants to go out and party and have fun. Um, and I like that's just a change I really enjoy in his character. Yeah. Um, and something about the way he listens to Dana's little speech about getting to be someone else. Yeah. It's not even just the the like free spiritedness and not having to look after his sisters. It's also not being his father's son, not being, you know, his father is a good for nothing who cheats on his mom. His mother's an alcoholic. Everybody know, like <laughs> everybody knows he's their kid. Yeah. Uh, and that would have followed him through the entirety of his life if he stayed in the two rivers forever. Yeah. And like mm. putting that into context of what like we know about like Matt's future reputation as a womanizer. Um and like but also when he's listening to like Dina's speech, it's very clear that he wants like the reason he wants to leave and go to new places and be a free spirit and gabbler boy is to escape his situation and not because he wants to go out and be horny in the world. Um so I feel like it's really setting up like whenever if Matt does eventually end up getting this reputation as a womanizer, like in the later books, like how that's gonna resonate with him. Um Yeah. I really hope Wheelie Time gets more series. I mean, I know it already does have like two more series. Speaking of character changes that we really like, um, Rand is so normal around women in the the show. He's so fucking weird about women in the books. Oh my God. Like, honestly, like my favorite thing that they've done is like made them all fuck. Like in this TV show. It's like- Rand in the books is very much like, Rand in the books is very much like, we held hands. That <laughs> yeah. that means I'm obligated to to do right by you and marry you. Oh god. <laughs> um, which yeah. which certainly read one kind of way when I was ten years old in the nineties, and uh, <laughs> reads a different kind of way. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Like if Matt is one kind of gamer, Rand is another. Like in the books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, just that, like, yeah, he loves Egwene, and he still loves Egwene, but it's it's like fun to flirt with somebody else and be flirted with and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, like as long as she doesn't cross like a line. Um yeah. Yeah, and like you know, like oh god, his his like banter with Matt where like Matt's making eyes at Dana and he's like, oh, "I thought Moraine was more your type." It's like it contrasts so much from the books when there's this like 14 book long motif of every time one of the boys like encounters something to do with like a woman or romance both of them are like oh my god Rand or Perrin would know what to do in this situation and like it's like really funny with the books but it just gets very wearing about how like clueless the boys see I don't it's good Hmm. I like that milf hunter Matt line Not to say that she is one. She has the vibes. Yeah. A Mother Lee figure. <laughs> Just wants a mommy GF. I think the boat sailed on MILF actually meaning a mother a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, true. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> oh my God. I just noticed something in my notes that I wanted to talk about in the regular episode, but didn't. Um, hi, never mind the spoilers, listeners. You get a special treat. You can tell the other listeners <gasps> about it. I don't mind. Um, it's that transition shot of when Dana is bleeding out and it turns into some trees 
Like, I'm going to be thinking about that visual for the rest of my life. It was so good. It was so good. Like, it's just a cool visual, but it was so good. It's good enough that it's worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. I'm making Walkura well what face at it. I think it should have formed the shape of an apostrophe, personally. <laughs> mm -mm. What about, like, an exclamation mark? Or, like, a comma? An, an, an interrobang. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the interrobang, the ancient symbol of the Aes Sedai, the exclamation mark representing the, like, terrifying power of Sidene, and the uh, uh, question mark representing the calm intellect of Sidar. Don't worry All about right, any of this. We're cutting we're cutting Sarah off. That's okay. it. We're done. Hang Podcast on. over. No. Hang on. One one question for the people who might remember. Are the green Aes Sedai the healers? Yellow. Yellow, Yellow is heals. healers. What's green? Uh girl boss thing. Sorry, they're, they're all girl, all girl bosses. bosses. Uh, yeah. He's specific. No. Green is the battle Aja. Okay. Cause Ooh. I'm wondering if it's significant that we have Nynaeve in green. The first time she encounters Aes Sedai, who are not Moraine, I and they're they're noticed. all like red and green sisters. I notice, and actually, I think I may have technically noticed this in the next episode, though she does have it in this episode. She's wearing a yellow skirt under that green coat. Oh, so there you are now. <sighs> I like the color delineations. It's like Star Trek Bridge Crew. Yeah, I'm really glad they all just put them in that color. <laughs> Like, they didn't have to, but they did. I'm like, thank you. That's how you can tell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I did see my first uh, Which Aes Sedai Aja Are You on Twitter. I got, I took it and I got green and I was really mad about it. <laughs> There's so, going to be the new, like, Which Bender Are You? Oh, God, like, absolutely. What did you want to be? I, like, I don't know, because this has bothered me for, like, like ever since I was reading Wheel of Time, is that I do not identify with any of the Ajas at all like i would be i would like no i would just leave <laughs> i would simply maybe leave. when we do maybe when we do the wrap-up episode we all take the quiz on air we mm -hmm. reveal our results mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <sighs> good episode good show yay good show how does this end sarah yep this is me <laughs> never mind these spoilers um <laughs> we have spoiled you all rotten by posting our hottest takes saying our most cursed um jo crystal jokes and thank you for tolerating all of that from mostly me um i we don't do plugs at the end of this episode but if you want to know who we are just rewind to the start of the show and uh listen to that again or you could just like read the description it, it says all that in there if you want to find us in more of an institutional capacity you can go to twitter at nvm the trollocs you can Email us your uh, worst Wheel of Time opinions, sorry, your wrongest Wheel of Time opinions to, to steal terminology from certain other podcasts at nevermindthetrollocks at gmail.com. What have I forgotten to say? That's it. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Peach. The wheel of time turns and podcasts come and pass, recording audacity files that become mp3s. mp3s that give rise to hot takes. But even the takes are long forgotten by the time a new episode comes out. For one podcast, called Nevermind the Trollocs by Some, a podcast about shows yet to come, a podcast about books long past, a five-star review was written. The five-star review was not the end of ways you can support the podcast. 
There are no beginnings or endings when supporting podcasts about the Wheel of Time. But it was an ending. <laughs>